the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back as we head into Hour 2, as we do in Hour 2 every Friday. We check in with George Kaloff. He is the managing partner at the Resolute Group and president of David uh, Orbital Consulting. George is uh, one of the best political minds and consultants and strategists in the country, and we are delighted he visits with us every Friday, and we are delighted he is here in the Valley of the Sun. Is it sunny out? I haven't looked outside in a while. George, welcome back. Happy Friday, sir. Happy Friday. It is thankfully sunny today. What I feel like <laughs> Makes it's been it a never-ending <laughs> string of <laughs> cold, dark days. Yeah, yeah, it's enough of that. Um, let me ask you this. This is kind of – I was just going over some of this with the audience in the previous hour. I don't remember a public race for – or public fight for the chairmanship of the RNC ever um, as much as this – current one was. It resolved today in favor of Rona McDaniel from challenges by uh, Mike Lindell and Harmy Dillon. It wasn't really that close as it turned out. A um, couple questions for you. How important is the RNC? Has its role changed over the years? And do we divine anything especially important over the fact that Rona McDaniel was reelected? Yeah. So, I mean, Look, I, I think that there is still a very critical role for the RNC, um, and I and I would agree with you. There have been very few, if ever, races that have been this public. Yeah. You know, oftentimes, just for listeners to be aware, you know, whoever is in the White House, uh, that president uh, picks more or less picks the chair of their respective yeah. parties. So Biden had a hand in picking, um, you know, the, the chair of the DNC, like how Trump had a hand in picking Ronald McDaniel to begin with when he won in 2016. Um, I think the importance, though, is depending uh, dependent upon who you are. So there are some facets of the policy world and in the political world that, no, they, they don't rely on the, the party structure. It doesn't matter RNC, county, state. To them, they are issue-focused and they rise above party. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they are bipartisan, but because the role of the party is much broader and it is to support Republicans, even when there are disagreements, these organizations don't, don't they don't just support Republicans. You know, they support gun rights like the NRA or social issues or life issues like someone else. And so they pick and choose, oftentimes leaning in one party. So I think that there's definitely uh, something here to unpack. I will say, obviously, the RNC is a bit, um, how do we say, how should we say, it's like far away from the average person in Arizona or yeah. wherever state that you are, similar to how a president feels farther away than a governor. Yeah. That doesn't mean that the president doesn't have a very clear impact on you. Uh, but, of course, your governor or then even lower your mayor is going to have more of an impact on your day. I think the same can be applied here. And on that point, someone told me, and I don't remember who or maybe I read it somewhere, that as well known as the RNC may be because of branding and name, when it comes to the elections of recent periods, maybe the last two to four elections, it seems almost as if the RGA, the Republican Governors Association, um, the House uh, Republican um, Re-Election Committee and the Senate 
reelection committee almost tend to be a little bit more important, or at least they were speculating that maybe they are more important than the RNC when it comes to these races than than in years past. I, I don't know if you have a thought on that, if that's close to true or eminently true. Sure, sure. So there's definitely more of a public-facing, loud, in-our-face role for the uh, NRSC, the National Republican yeah. Senatorial Committee, or the NRCC, the National Republican Congressional Committee. What do I mean by that? They're the ones that do the big TV buys uh-huh. and radio buys, uh-huh. and they often send those big, you know, those flashy mailers. And so they get a lot more media, and they're more in our face, quote-unquote. I think the uniqueness of what an RNC should uh, perform, or like what a comparatively a state party should do, is the grassroots. And I always say this as someone who sort of started my career in the grassroots political world, um, the, not, the least sexy of the political tasks is it's the boots on the ground, it's opening up field offices when we actually had physical offices. It's the people that are doing all of the work that a lot of us don't see. But I'll tell you, in my humble experience, it is some of the most important work, arguably. Good. And so that's why I think that there's, again, beauty, in, uh, you know, to use the metaphor or the phrase, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Uh-huh. Grassroots is very critical. Uh-huh. It's not where often the big dollars are spent. But I'll tell you, there's a big impact for when the RNC has 60, you know, let's say field directors in your state, or if the RNC doesn't have those 60 field directors, uh-huh. it has an impact on the uh-huh. outcome of an election. Okay. All right. Good. Good. Talk to me a little bit. I mean, we won't know until tomorrow because we'll, I guess we're having another, uh, not I guess, I know we're having an election for the chairmanship of the state party tomorrow, so we won't have much to talk about till that's completed. But, George, talk to me about some other things going on in the state right now. I, I have been kind of tracking Governor Hobbs um, and the tenure she's commencing with versus the way she campaigned and the way she seemed to attract some support from outside of her Democratic base. You know, she campaigned on transparency while dodging the media and then hosting an inaugural that was funded by up to $250,000 a shot at dark or anonymous money that she won't disclose donorship for. And now, you know, she this week was famously smiling and chortling and chuckling about how the legislature is not going to get past her bragging about and posing with pictures of her veto stamp. People need to remember, I think, or you tell me, need to remember a little bit that if she thinks she has a mandate she won that election by 17,000 votes when over two and a half million were cast. This is not exactly a resounding mandate for whatever Katie Hobbs wants to strut about, is it? It is a very peculiar way to conduct yourself. And I think, for example, uh, to unpack that inauguration fund even a little bit further, uh, obviously we're at the end of January, so she was inaugurated a handful of weeks ago. Uh, she just now committed after pressure from the Republican Speaker of the House and the Republican Senate President, to use those funds, which has ceremoniously been the case, not for future political reasons, which she was sort of indicating she would, but she will now has committed to use them for the public good reasons. Okay. And again, that's, that's a very broad term, but she just now committed to that after lots of sort of ebb and flow and back and forth. But look, look the threats and the photo with the, with the veto stamp, the thing that just really, uh, you know, ironic is probably too soft of a word, but grinds my gears with that is this, that at the same time she's doing that because she is positioning that Republicans are doing things that are very partisan. There's been a very uh, high amount of things that her office and people that work for her office have done that are 
as intensely partisan on the left as anything Republicans are doing on the right, so then what's the difference? Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what's the actual like what message are you trying to get across? There's been so many things that we can kind of unpack and talk, even in the groups she's holding an audience with on the ninth floor and the photos that she's posting. I mean, they're very clearly political, partisan, base, progressive things. But then when Republicans do something that's the same, she's seemingly calling them out and saying, oh, they're not in the best interest of the state. The state's split. In what? In best case for her, the state is evenly split 50-50 for all intents and purposes. So to your point, we've said this multiple times. Well, then how do you govern as if you have a mandate like you're the governor of New Jersey or you're the governor of California and you got elected 60-40? That's not the case in Arizona. Yeah, especially when she was campaigning on that being the kind of governor she would be, right? Uh, governor of all Arizonans. She seems to have slammed the door on an awful lot of Arizonans over the last couple of weeks. And it has become clear now in analysis that our firm has done a data orbital in a recent article in the Washington Post that Aaron Blake did an analysis there that we had one of the highest, if not the highest instance of Republicans voting for a Democrat mm-hmm. as we have had in the last five or six cycles. Yeah. And so now the question is, all right, uh, how do those Republicans feel about even in a handful of weeks and how do those Republicans feel about their choice? Yeah. And, um, you know, did they vote for her out of love for her or out of, um, you know, sort of, a, you know, out of uh, out of desire to say no to to the other option? Right. I mean, that's the kind of questions you start to ask yourself. But, yeah, she won in this tone of uh, we're going to bring the state together. And again, I keep saying this. That's what the words that are coming out of her mouth indicate. But then her actions are indicating something completely different. But at some point, the rubber is going to meet the road. We have to get a budget done this legislative session. We have to figure out. I mean, I suppose she could veto hundreds of bills. I don't know. But if she's just looking to only sign bills that Democrats pass up, well, that's just not how the world works in divided government. So yeah, something's it's get. going to be awfully hard when the Democrats don't control the legislature, too. Let me exactly. ask you this. As I, can I keep you another segment? I, because uh, well, you, you raised something interesting, and I have to take a break here. But you raised, you know, Republicans that, uh, you know, that are voting independent of the Republican candidates often. What I would love to talk to you about on the other side of this break, what does the Republican Party in Arizona look like now? Who is the what, – what, are we a conservative party? Are we not a conservative party? Are we a schizophrenic party? Talk to me about what the Republican Party in Arizona is when we come back. Can we do that? And that has implications yeah. Yeah, not just for state here. candidates – but for presidential candidates who are coming here as well. I'm Seth Liebson. He is George Kaloff from the Resolute Group and Data Orbital, and he and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Delighted to have George Kaloff with us. He is the managing partner at the Resolute Group and the president of Data Orbital. Also has an education organization. Remind me of the name of your new education organization, George? First day, PR. There you go. Thank you. Um, so going into the break, we were just about to ask you, or I wanted to ask you, talking about you know Republicans who don't always seem to, don't always, and in this past election, maybe more than ever, didn't vote for the Republican candidate. What is the Republican in Arizona? What is the Republican flavor? What is the taste? What is the... What is the what is the what is the temperament here in Arizona? What kind of a Republican Party do we have? I mean, obviously, you can't speak on behalf of um, all of them. But what are the contours? What how what what constitutes our Republican Party here? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I can give you some thoughts and listeners some thoughts as well in terms of, you know, based on the 
survey work that we've done, and frankly, in, in Arizona and in a lot of other places as well, but focusing on Arizona, we more or less have about 75% of the Republican Party that whether in self-description or in behavior identify as conservative. Now, I understand, and we probably don't have enough time to unpack the whole sort of college course on what does that mean and, and all of the contours, but more or less, those individuals would ascribe to most, if not all, of the traditional Republican Party platforms, from culture to fiscal issues. Okay, And that is a critical component of it, because the cultural issues are a big part of that percentage of the party. And then we have about 25% of the party that are missing more than what you would traditionally feel like is, a, is appropriate to be a sort of like a you know, full-fledged conservative. And usually, it is because of cultural issues, mm-hmm. not because of fiscal issues, right? Mm-hmm. Because in other states, for example, maybe it's around, oh, they're union members, mm-hmm. and so it's fiscal. No, here it's traditionally cultural. They're maybe a little bit more pro-choice or, you know, they've got, you know, different varying views on religious freedom application and LGBTQ rights, that type of stuff. And it's about 75-25. And again, yes, I'm sure someone can show me a poll that is 70-30 or 80-20, but more or less, those are the contours. Uh-huh. So. The way that that then connects, and this is the interesting thing, Seth, to unpack, because our state is essentially in even thirds between Republicans, Democrats, and Independents, and actually Republicans are the highest party than Independents and Democrats, and there's about 4% more Republicans. When you do that math and you go into a general election, you need, you as in the Republican nominee, needs a good percentage of those 25%. Now, some of them are never going to vote for anyone. It doesn't matter if it was Governor Ducey or Carrie Lake or whoever it may be. But you, you know, we lost higher than average for sure, but you need the majority of those people. And then you need a good percentage of independents that tend to look more like those 25 percent of Republicans. Mm -hmm. And so that's where Arizona and you and I have talked about this. Is it purple? Is it blue? No, I I still believe it's a light red. Um, It's definitely continuing to show itself, though, as a light red. And now it's not Denver and it's not Colorado and it's not Virginia, but it's definitely not. Um, Wyoming or uh, Alabama or Mississippi either. So we are we're definitely in between, arguably closer to uh, Colorado than we are electorally to a Wyoming or Mississippi at this point. Do we have a sense, and I guess it would probably change uh, from year to year, but do we have a sense of what constitutes the bulk of that non-affiliated or independent um, uh it's a non-affiliated, we call it an independent registration, but they're really just, it's really a non-affiliated registration, right? I mean, technically, but yeah. do we have a sense of what the flavor of that that group is, or is it all over the place? It's kind of all over the place. They tend to majority self-select and identify themselves as moderate. Now, the problem is moderate yeah. is yeah. <laughs> it's anyone's guess. Traditionally, they lean more conservative on border security and on inflation and things like that. They probably lean a little bit more pro-choice than pro-life, but they actually usually lean a little bit more in Republican favor on religious freedom issues in terms of, like, for example, should there be a state-mandated sexual orientation and gender identity statute that, you know, let's say would say a business owner X, you must perform a, you know, a, you know, you must bake a cake for a, a wedding you don't agree with or yeah. convey a message in that, you know, in that vein. You, you see what I'm saying? So yeah. they tend to lean in that way. So it's a little bit hodgepodge. They probably are. Um, you know, they're more likely to support, let's say, tax increases for education or want more funding for education, but they're definitely in favor of school choice. So it is a little bit of a hodgepodge. And I would say they're more they're more intentional and more, um, uh, I should say, uh, responsive to uh, candidates 
uh, candidate-specific things, so whether it's personality or temperament, because yeah. they feel a non-alliance. Yeah, these are going to be people that say, I vote for the person, not the party, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. They, they want to make it a point to say, no, I don't straight ticket anyone yeah. because I'm an independent. That's my intent. And I will say they vote a lot less than Republicans and Democrats. Yeah. So independent sometimes, and this is the problem that we have, sometimes it's synonymous in sort of our industry with people that are tend to be more politically apathetic, yeah. which is why they yeah. don't get tended to as much. Yeah. And then you wonder why independent candidates <laughs> don't run as independents. Well, it's because there's no such thing as an independent party. They, they are inherently in every cycle way more politically apathetic and way less likely to vote than their Democratic or Republican counterparts. Yeah, right. No, a real party would have energy uh, behind it, I would assume, or at least uh, activism. Jo- uh, George, I only have a couple, three minutes left, but the other news, if we can look at the other party, I guess Ruben Gallego put out uh, a, a, an equivalent of an ad this week. Uh, Kirsten Cinema had a semi-response to it. Who's looking better for re-election if she decides to run, and does it look to you like she is going to run? I mean, that's 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 a weather vane test too. But who's looking better this week if she does decide to run, Ruben or or Cinema or or an unknown yeah. Republican at this point? Sure, sure. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it's actually ironic because his video invoked her name yeah. uh, and invoked sort of the criticism that he has had of her, which is that she's for the party elite, even though technically he's not running against her, right? right. I mean, definitely not in the primary. Yeah. And I get it. There's no other declared candidate. So he is making it very clear he's running against her, but understanding that, like, he's running as a Democrat, she's running as an independent, and their paths aren't going to cross until November. Uh, the answer to is she going to run is I don't know. I mean, look, I... Uh, I've and I've said this uh, for a while. She is one of the most politically astute elected officials that there uh, that we have in Arizona, and that arguably there exists in the country. Yeah. I think that she is going to be looking at consistent information and data and polling. I think her reasoning to become an independent is based on that and based on this desire. Because look, she doesn't fit in the mold. I mean, whether people believe why she's doing it or don't believe why she's doing it, that that's a moot point at this point because she has conducted herself for a long time as as not fitting in the traditional molds of a Democrat. Um, but I, I will say, on the other hand, our country does not have a lot of examples, definitely not in recent history, when uh, there are uh, when there are candidates that are listed as Democrat and listed as Republican for an independent to prevail. Yeah. Uh, we have seen independents win when one party is missing. So Bernie Sanders in Vermont. Yeah. Um, uh, Lisa Murkowski did this in Alaska. Right. Um, Evan McMullen tried to do it in Utah, yeah. but very rarely is it independent Democrat Republican and the independent um, shoots up because again, parties, party voters tend to affiliate with their party allegiance. The one thing that's unique about Kirsten Cinema is this: when you look at the data, she actually has right now a higher favorability rate, ironically enough, with Republicans than she does with Democrats. Oh yeah, that's going to be the most interesting yeah, and it's thing odd with such a yeah. Yeah. As we go go down this. Line. Yeah. Next week, I want to talk to you about because we're running out of time. We've run out of time here. But next week, I wonder if there could be, you know, as as Republicans may not have voted for the Republican candidate in record numbers this last time around. I wonder if Ruben Gallego is the kind of Democrat that a lot of Democrats may not vote for. Maybe ponder that for our next session. That might be an interesting uh, parallelism. Yeah, absolutely. George sure. Kaloff, thank you so much for your friendship and everything else. George Kaloff on the Resolute Group and Data Orbital. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Anyone uh, in the state of Arizona who takes Middle Eastern history seriously takes my guest, Mayor Jolivet, seriously. I consider him a teacher. Many in this audience and beyond do as well. I opened the show 
reading an op-ed, uh, a piece, really an essay he wrote uh, to commemorate uh, the memory not only of uh, his family and parents, but what is today uh, International Holocaust uh, Memorial Day, Remembrance Day. Mayor Jolovitz is, uh, among many things, the past national executive director of the Zionist Organization of America. Many of you hear him on Saturdays on the show Middle East Radio Forum, heard right here. Mayor, uh, my teacher, thank you for joining us, and thank you for that essay that I uh, uh, referred to earlier. I'm honored. Thank you very much. Just one correction. Yes, sir. Middle East Radio Forum does appear on 960 The Patriot, but it's on Sunday. Oh, I'm noon. sorry. Did I? I'm sorry. I got it wrong. I yeah. apologize. Sunday. Thank you for the correction. Sunday's at noon, uh, where you are often uh, hosting and guesting. Uh, Mayor, um, I don't know where to start here. There's a, a massacre at a Jerusalem synagogue, killing uh, at least seven. Um, I see that there are massive celebrations uh, in the streets of Israel. You know, I, I guess I, I started reading your essay. Last time I was in Israel a couple of years ago, I went through Yad Vashem, and a couple next to me, non-Jewish, walking out, said, uh, one. the husband said to the wife, something haunting. He said, now I know why Israel has nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, what's going on, brother? What's going on in Israel right now? Oh, allow me to begin with this, because there's such a misunderstanding about everything, about the conflict, about the language. I often, during my lectures, talk about the fact that uh, language is so important, yeah. because language uh, uh, defines uh, the narrative, and the narrative uh, always directs the debate. Uh, in this particular case, uh, we seem to pretend that there are two potential peace partners in the Middle East, Israel and its adversaries, and the right buttons simply need to be pushed in order for us to arrive at that peace. Uh, I've been lecturing now for uh, almost 50 years. Um, peace is not only not Im- uh, it's not only improbable, it's impossible, for reasons which I'll explain ever so briefly. But I do want to quote Eric Hoffa, that brilliant mind, who once said, and this applies to so many things uh, that we experience in life, he said, we lie the loudest when we lie to ourselves. Ah, mm-hmm. And those people who speak of a potential peace, here it is, we had Blinken, the Biden administration is scolding Israel, telling Israel that Israel needs to offer more concessions in order for the Arabs to be somehow placated. Well, the formula in the Middle East has been for some time, including um, uh, programs which have been proffered by the so-called Friends of Israel. And I refer to all these Western diplomats, these Western leaders, and quite a number, most American Jewish organizations, as so-called Friends of Israel, when in reality they aren't. What they do is they push for this terrible thing uh, called the two-state solution, which I've often referred to as the two-state illusion or two-state delusion, uh, which basically suggests that Israel has a peace partner. Uh, Israel does not have a peace partner. The only formulas that we've had in the past, uh, well, since Oslo in September 13, 1993, have been ones which have suggested that peace in the Middle East will come when the Israelis give and the Arabs take. Uh, The history of those uh, agreements, or the failed agreements as well, is that Israel does indeed give concession after concession, and the Arabs take, and there's no peace. Yeah, uh, we don't have to go back too far. Uh, Israel m- removed itself lock, stock, and barrel from Gaza, and they placed Hamas. 
Exactly right. In August of 2005, Israel was called by that wonderful name, Israel's unilateral disengagement uh, from Gaza. Israel pulled out not only every one of the soldiers that were stationed in and around Gaza, they tore down 24 Jewish communities. They uprooted 14,000 Jewish, they call them settlers, Jewish residents of Jewish towns, forcibly evicting them. They turn it over to Gaza. Gaza, there's, when people talk about, AOC talks about the occupation of Gaza. <laughs> it's occupied by Hamas. No. There is no Israeli presence in Gaza. And by the way, to come back, and I must, when we talk about Gaza, talk about the uh, two-state illusion. The, the people, and I'm talking about the, the, the liberal Western world, talks about a two-state solution necessary to bring about peace in the Middle East. What would those two states be? One would be Israel, uh, with the presupposition, of course, that the other would be Palestine. Where and what would Palestine be? Palestine would be the confederation of the West Bank, or as it should be rightly called, Judea and Samaria, and also Gaza. Well, how would those two confederate? They're at war with each other most of the time. Hold it right the there. Hold it right right there. Really i got to take the break. Hold it right there. Let's pick up on that on the other side of this break. Mayor Jolovitz is our guest. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Mayor Jolovitz is a um, one of the uh, most popular educators in uh, our community on the Middle East. You often hear him on Middle East Radio Forum, heard here Sundays at noon. He is the past national executive director of the Zionist Organization of America, talking about what's taking place in Israel today in this quest for a two-state uh, solution. Uh, Mayor, you were just before the break, getting into uh, presumably a two-state solution would be Israel and an Arab state. I believe you were about to go into the problem of that state sandwiching Israel with two different factioning parties, but let me not speak for you. You talk to us about that point. Yeah, I'll dismiss it as quickly as I can by saying this, and it's quite obvious. The term that's most often used in describing why there's a conflict between Arab and uh, in Jew in the Middle East, they talk about they, uh, certainly Israel's adversaries, its enemies, they talk about occupation. By occupation, most of the people that I'm sure any guests that you've had on the show that would talk about occupation and where the lines need to be drawn in order for the peace to be found, they talk about the occupation that came following the Six-Day War, 1967. That's what the Western world refers to by occupation. When Anthony Blinken talks about Israel having to go back to the pre-67 lines, that is, by the way, the State Department's policy, they talk about Israel giving up the occupation, as they did in Gaza in 2005. For the Arabs, it's a completely different mindset. And this is where we have a complete misunderstanding of the core of the conflict. For the Arabs... The occupation wasn't from 1967. The occupation began in 1948. In July of this past year, when Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinian Authority, stood shoulder to shoulder with Joe Biden, he told Biden that he, Mahmoud Abbas, speaking on behalf of the Palestinian people, wanted the United States to help remove Israel from its occupation, which at the time, he said, is 74 years old. That was his number, 74 years old, which brings us, of course, to 1948. 
if you watch Arab media, social media, it's, me, uh, it's television, it's radio, it's newspapers, it's Facebook. They talk about the occupation having begun in 1948, which was when the modern state of Israel was reestablished, when it was established. For the Arabs, therefore, it must be understood that peace for them is without Israel. It's with the occupation, meaning Israel proper, eliminated. And there's a very simple way of proving this. If the 1967 war created the occupation, as everyone in the Western world believes that it did, why was there no peace in 1966 or 1962? Well, let, let me there... ask you this question. Mahmoud Abbas comes out of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO. Why was it founded in 1964? It's exactly right. Okay. It was founded three years chronologically before Israel, to use their term, occupied the territories. But nobody asked the question. By the way, the PLOs, the, the PA, which is it's the, it's the cosmetic name for the PLO, which still exists, basically solicitors to the PLO Covenant, its charter, which basically says in 33 articles, many of them explicit, others implicit, using euphemisms, calling for the destruction of the state of Israel. It was only about eight months ago when a senior official of the Palestinian Authority was asked, is the covenant still relevant? And his answer was, it will always be relevant. It's a covenant. And Hamas, of course, in 1988, has its own covenant. And mind you, the word covenant is more often used more so than charter because of the holy implication that's assigned to the destruction of Israel. And so when we are honest enough, when when intellectual integrity allows us to actually say, what is the occupation that bothers the Arab? It isn't 1967. It's 1948, which means Israel's very existence. Israel has turned back some 90-plus percent of land since 1967 in any regard, hasn't it? It has. In fact, uh, if you bring up percentages, there are a couple of failed attempts by Israeli prime ministers uh, to give back what they said. Uh, Ehud Olmer was one. Before him, it was Ehud Barak, in which they scratched their heads and couldn't understand why when they offered respect, uh, originally Yasser Arafat and later his successor, Mahmoud Abbas, and they said, this is the Israeli spokesman saying, we don't understand. We offered them 96 percent of the occupied territories, and with uh, Ehud Omer, he said 98% of the occupied territories, and the Arabs still said no. And the reason is, is because even the Israeli prime ministers are too foolish to admit that they weren't offered 96% of what Mahmoud Abbas believed was occupied. In fact, in a speech that he gave a year ago, he used a number which was incorrect if you do the math. He said the Israelis have only offered us 11% of what is ours. He was referencing, of course, that all of Israel belonged to him. If one sits with a calculator that has a battery in it, (laughs) you can do the math, and what Israel has offered them in giving back 96 or 98% of what was again, called occupied, is actually in the, in the lexicon of the Arab world, only 19%. They, they, these are two adversaries. There's not to be a meeting of the minds. And anyone who believes that that's going to happen um, is going to be, you know, set up a disappointment. Yeah, let me connect I do that lecture, dog. I on a Le- weekly basis. And, uh, in fact, this coming lecture that I'm going to be doing, I list 14 different peace agreements, which were the result of a peace process, which failed. And one by one by one, they failed. Israel gives, the Arabs get. Israel gives, the Arabs get. 
because Israel isn't willing to yet commit suicide. The airplane, by the way, is quite clever, and they learned this from Sadat. They learned that you can get more through diplomatic means than you can through a war. And by diplomatic means, I'm talking about a peace process, as fraudulent as it might be. And so what the Arabs have done is they've replaced the tanks with let's sit down in Geneva and negotiate Israel's demise. How does that happen? We will ask, first of all, for Israel to be truncated to its pre-67 borders, which, by the way, are the same borders for anyone who knows his or her history. It's the 1949 armistice lines. So Israel is being asked to go back to what Abba Eben once called the Auschwitz borders, and then the Arabs tell us we will then negotiate the future terms. Mayor, I Israel only have about... We need to say no. I only have we about need to two... Say no. I have Israel, about... I have about two and a half minutes left. Let me connect a dot or have you connect a dot, a couple dots for us. I had a guest earlier who uh, left Lebanon because she said civil war had destroyed that country. Um, Mm -hmm. It's it's an interesting implication when you think about what, what what's asked of Israel with its peace partners. Israel wasn't the cause or involved in the civil war in Lebanon, and yet it's asked to do exactly what could not be done with Lebanon and was the destruction of a once beautiful country. Might you say a word about that in the next two minutes? Yes. um, Yeah, quite simply. Lebanon is a perfect example. Lebanon was once considered the Switzerland of the Middle East, as far as the Arab world is concerned. Uh, There was a a measure of parity politically between the Muslims and the Christians. And if you want to talk about ethnic cleansing, the Muslims are the experts. Bethlehem, we just had Christmas. Bethlehem, in 1950, Bethlehem had an 82% population. The town of Bethlehem, uh, 82% Christian. Today it's 12%. Ethnic cleansing by the Muslims. One last word. The peace partner that we speak about, Mahmoud Abbas, has a pay-for-slave program in which they incite support and then pay the families of terrorists who might have, who might have been neutralized, as the word. They pay them a lifetime stipend for having killed Jews. And there's actually a legend, a formula, depending upon how many Jews you kill, where you kill them, and so on and so forth, that they are paid to murder Jews. This program being run by Mahmoud Abbas, Israel's potential peace partner. Peace, peace, but there is no peace. Uh, Mayor Jolovitz, you are a a treasure. You are a treasure. Thank you, sir. Thank you for your essay today. Thank you for your friendship. Thank you for your teaching. Thank you for all you do. I am Seth Liebson. I'll be right back. You've probably been hearing me talk about Why Refi for a bit now, and if you still have some questions, uh, feel free to call them at 888-YREFI-34. They can put you in touch with plenty of satisfied customers who are happily investing and getting great returns with them. How's your IRA doing? Would you like your IRA to be earning strong fixed interest rates and not be dependent on the stock market or Joe Biden's economy? Did you know you can invest with Y-Refi through an IRA or other qualified funds and you can keep your investment, including the high fixed interest rates you earn, tax deferred? That's right. Your money can stay in your IRA and you don't have to pay taxes on the income you earn. Check them out at investyrefi.com or give them a call at 888-YREFI. 34. A few of us around here, when we're not uh, when we're uh, not listening to 960, check in on the Adam Carolla podcast from time to time because, as Dennis says, few people understand human nature as well, at least in Dennis's estimation, and sometimes in ours as well. Sometimes, um, 
And we were noticing an interesting thing, Bill and I, weren't we, that about 10 years ago, because on the weekends they were playing a – they play uh, you know, repeated shows. They play previous shows, archived shows. Back about 10 years ago, he was, he was more pro-drug legalization. And today he's pretty strongly not. And, uh, you know, he had a guest on today that was just frothing nonsense about mass incarceration and drugs. Uh, just some basics, you know, folks. When you hear the phrase mass incarceration, just, you know, do the math, disaggregate the data. Don't fall for these terms that have been inverted. Do you realize that less than one half of one percent of the U.S. population is incarcerated? Let me say that again. Less than one half of one percent of the U.S. population is incarcerated. Uh, how how anything that constitutes less than one half of one percent can be called mass is immediately beginning the discussion with a lie. And then they get into all kinds of things. Disaggregate the data. The data's out there. If you want to look at who's really in jail, who's really in prison, um, 99.5% of them are not there for mere possession. And no one in the federal system is. No one. No one. You're there because you did something wrong. You're there because you did something terribly, terribly wrong. It's not society's fault either. All right. We, uh, we're going to do – oh, yes, I have a lot to say in the next uh, hour. I want to talk about the Republican Party and what it means. Don't go away. A lot more coming up. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 